The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, Super Bowl 57 was the first in history with two black quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts gave us a classic, but there was a long road that came before them. And I'll just say this, it sucks being a trailblazer. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, we're here. It's Wednesday. Yes, I'm a day short. There was love in the air on yesterday. It was Valentine's Day. And your boy had a duty to, let's just say, take care of. Now, look, I I did cook dinner last night for my daughter and my wife, and it was great. And I loved every minute of it. You had to do something great for my two favorite girls and my two favorite women. Well, my daughter's not a woman just yet. She's still in middle school. But (laughs) I had to do something special for them, and I had to take the day off. I'm I'm sorry, Um, but we're here today. (laughs) It's a late drop, but thanks for stopping in. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. Again, this show is always for you gals and you guys, and it's cool if you already know this stuff, but remember there's someone else who does not. Congratulations to you who do, but look, this show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history, so we're here to do those three things. For those who already know it, say it with me. Enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic podcast. We are presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Sports Media, uh, Belly Up Media, the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. You know, check us out on bellyupsports.com. Uh, go to that website, click on it, read the articles as well as listening to the show, especially this one. And you can catch us on our new home base if you access Megaphone. Go to Megaphone. That's our new home base. And of course, for all of you Sparkies out there that love Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and more. You can catch this show on most of those, well, all of those major platforms. I'm just not on YouTube yet. I'm dragging my feet. I'm sorry. I'm going to get to that one of these days. I'm sorry. But, you know, let's start here. I got a question. Why, what was Fletcher Cox wearing pregame? And I wonder what Michael Strahan said before, during, and at, well, what he said afterwards. That was a blouse, man. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't understand fashion like that. I don't have money like that. You know, I, okay, let me be quiet. But that that was that was very interesting. <laughs> that was very, very interesting. But look, we're going to get to it. This is the final rundown of the NFL season. And for those who like to go straight to the history portion of this show, all right, you know, you'll be able to do that after today. So let's do it. The Super Bowl 57 Rundown, first of all, commercials. I loved some of those commercials. Um, my favorite was the Bud Light. I, I work as a CSA, which is a customer service agent at FedEx now. I'm not on the road anymore. And when we get put on hold, we hear that same music too. I hear it all day long. And that's my favorite so I don't know what it's called. I, maybe one day I'll find out what it is. But I really got that commercial. Uh, I love that uh, the Michelob Ultra Caddyshack one. That was good. I love that. Uh, the Rakuten 
what, the Clueless one? I mean, I was a fan of that show. I mean, excuse me, that movie. Um, the Tubi, Rabbit Hole, we didn't understand that at first. When we first seen them, like, okay, what's with the giant, scary-looking rabbits? And then, you know, they drop them down the hole, and there's TVs everywhere. I was like, oh, I got it now. All right, took me a minute. Uh, so, yeah, we was all kind of looking a little crazy. Uh, I did enjoy the little John Travolta, Travolta, Grease theme t-mobile one as well but i can't wait to see these movies i i will i'm going to watch the flash and my wife got a little bit too happy when she saw michael key i, I didn't like that very much you know he's the batman he's back as batman all right great uh, i do want to see the indiana jones movie oh man will ferrell is getting old he's starting to show it now yeah <laughs> maybe because i watched too many old movies uh, but anyway, but there were so many storylines to this game. You got the Kelsey brothers. Um, it, it, it was what Andy Reid versus his old team. You had the first quarterback. I mean, first Super Bowl featuring two black quarterbacks. Great, that was great. When we get to the game, you know, you got Philly's first drive, eleven straight plays, touchdown. All right, you know, we, we're in there. The Eagles they have perfected that quarterback wedge. It's, you can't stop it if they want a yard. You know, give or take a player here uh, and play here or there, uh, they, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. Then you, Isaiah Pachenko, just some things I took away from the game. This guy runs upset. I mean, I watched him all year long, but you really got to see it. If you didn't watch, for those who just watched the Super Bowl, and this this guy runs like that all the time. I mean, he was a low round draft pick, and he took Clyde Edwards Hilaire's job who was inactive for the game by the way oh I, I didn't i forgot actually i did know i forgot that melvin gordon was even on the team i mean we fumbled the ball so much at the beginning of the season and they decide to slice you off the roster i mean that's what happens but good for you good for you you know uh but he runs with uh, pachenko he he runs with an attitude yeah travis kelsey when they scored their first touchdown with the stanky leg i forgot i did forget that indomitian sue was playing with the eagles i did but uh you had those back-to-back -back mistakes after the aj brown touchdown catch because the eagles offense was rolling remember this uh, and i will continue to say this neither one of these defenses were great they were kind of middle of the road and for those who's like ah oh, yeah the eagles defense was so great you know they was doing so well no you didn't pay attention to the pass defense and the way that they were giving up some points whether Hertz was there or not. They had to play some games from behind. It wasn't many, right? Um, but this is one that they finally ended up having to play from behind. They still played well offensively. Defensively, they had some holes. They really did. Um, but you had those mistakes. You had the right guard. I forget his name. He had the false start on third and one. That was going to be a first down, and he probably was going to score a touchdown, most likely. Um, but, I mean, woulda, coulda, shoulda, maybe. I have no idea. But then the next play, you have what? the uh, Jalen Hurts, he fumbles. You have the scoop and score moment. That's going to be on NFL Films by Nick Bolton. And that right there was one of the mistakes that really hurt Philadelphia. Okay? Like, really hurt Philadelphia. And then you have... <laughs> and then, of course, you get to the portion of the game where Kadarius Tony returns that punt. That was, to me, that was the biggest play of the game. Even bigger than the Bradbury hold 
on Juju Smith-Schuster. I know that that was, I mean, they was going to kick a field goal, and there was no guarantee they was going to make it. Get to that in a second, um, Harrison Bucker. But that punt return, to me, was the biggest play of the football game. Um, Jalen Hurts, he ties a Super Bowl record with the three rushing touchdowns. He ties Terrell Davis, and then uh, he ties it at 35 all in the fourth quarter. He gets the two-pointer, right? When Kansas City got the ball back, as soon as he scores anyway, I'm looking at the clock. Five minutes is some change for a defense that had not really stopped you know, Kansas City, especially in the second half. They scored every single time in the second half Kansas City did. And remember this, Mahomes did that on one leg. Remember there towards the end of the half, he gets tackled and his ankle, that same ankle, where there was no injury nobody was on the injury report right they didn't report anybody being questionable nobody was on the injury report including Mahomes we knew that ankle was not 100% no it wasn't high ankle sprain takes too long to heal and not even two weeks was going to be enough no cold tub in the world was going to fix that okay it has to heal has to have some time to heal and you saw him limping and the way that he went to the sideline I did not think he was going to be able to come back and play even like he did in the second half so he got some kind of shot or something i have no idea uh i kind of shut down i'm like after the game was over with and everything i've watched some things but uh any kind of details on that i don't know anything as of yet again this is wednesday february the 15th day after love day and i'm telling you what i know from what i'm describing from sunday and he came back and they scored every time right well you know you had that punt return and then you see all that time that was left after Hurst scores the touchdown and then the two-pointer you had to know that they was going to play I mean they was going to score okay they was either going to win unless two things happen Kansas City turns the football over or Harrison Bucker misses a potential game-winning field goal Mahomes, you had that big run he had on that one leg for 26 yards. You can see it all in his face. You know, they, they say on the uh, NFL films, the Super Bowl, um, uh, you know, recap of the, the Broncos when they, what was it? No, 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 no. That was the, uh, not the Broncos. It was the Washington football team when on the America's game, when Joe Theismann is describing John Riggins on that 42-yard touchdown run on fourth and a foot. And he's like, look at the guy's face. Just look at his face. I said, I was thinking the exact same thing when they showed the replay of Mahomes on that 26-yard touchdown run. They had to have it. And they got it. Third and eight. And let me say this. For those who complain about the play, you know about it by now. James Bradbury, uh, whom Juju Smith-Schuster, he slick made a Valentine's Day card, said, I'll hold you if nobody else will. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> that was bad. He grabbed Juju. And he admitted it. He said, hey, look, I, I I did it. I was hoping they would let it slide. Me and another co-worker was discussing this earlier today. And basically, it's like, okay, it's you, Bradbury, the receiver, Schuster, and the referee out there all by themselves. You think he's not going to call that? He actually grabbed Juju even when he's running the first route to kind of run like the little zig out, he grabbed him the first time. But then he grabbed him a second time when he goes to turn up field. At some point, sir, as if I'm thinking as a ref, I, okay, I let you get away with one, but the second one, 
I can't do it. The flag is thrown. Uh, hey, just like Tony Dungy, he tweeted, look, they, they're going to call. You just didn't like it because it was at the end of the game. It's just that simple. You didn't like it. Let them play. You let them play. No, there was, there's always stuff that you miss. If you don't watch every NFL game, if you don't watch on a daily basis, you know, or, or a Sunday, day, or, or a week-to-week basis, you know, come on, you know this. Professionals, they're tweeting this. You know this. They're going to throw some flags at certain times. You just didn't like when they threw the flag. They were throwing flags during this game, and, and they threw that one. You got to live with it. So either it was a field goal or they was going to, you know, with the clock bled down because this occurred just inside of two minutes, right? So you're thinking you got a minute and some change with no timeouts left to go, and you're going to make them, you know, drive with more time, and you're not going to stop Jalen Hurts. You're probably going to give him a chance to kick the field goal or even score a touchdown to win. That's true, but we have no no guarantees of that. Don't know. We don't know. Um, because Billy hadn't stopped him anyway. Uh, but anyway, we got to stop. Kirk Herbstreet, I'm talking to you. You're my boy. I love you. Um, he was holding. Bradbury said from his own lips, I was holding. I tugged his jersey. I was hoping they would let it slide. So now what? Harrison Bucker, we've seen it before. I agree with Andrew Brandt. I read one of his tweets. Kickers are like lawyers. You never appreciate it until you need a good one. And all I could think of was about those extra points in the field goals that he missed even in the regular season. Not just the one he missed in the first half, right? Um, you know, if you listen to the show long enough, I mentioned this every single time that it's happened throughout the season. And, of course, that 42-yarder that he doinked in the first half. Kansas City, they bleed the, tr- the clock all the way down to 11 seconds. Boom, bang, pow. Bucker nails it. Eight seconds left to go in the game. Philly, they need a mir- miracle. They did not get it. The Eagles were supposed to have, again, such a great defense. And they gave up a lot in the second half. And let's just remember that they actually had to play a quarterback this time around. The Giants, no challenge. Neither was San Francisco, who was about to play quarterbacks five and six before um Brock Purdy, the third stringer, had to come back in without being able to throw the football, only hand it off and throw a little short that wasn't doing anything. It wasn't going to be use checking McCaffrey, thank God, but it still didn't work out. So, great season for Philly. Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes, and that entire Chiefs organization, they got their ring. Very happy for Juju. Very happy to get happy for Melvin Gordon and, uh, and Kadarius Tony and Carlos Dunlap, who missed out on one last year with the Bengals, right? Patrick Mahomes, he got his second NFL MVP, his second uh, Super Bowl MVP. I'm guessing that high ankle spring, it just wasn't as bad as we thought. You know? <laughs> but And then you had all those uh, injured receivers, and Schuster and Tony were both healthy. They helped. It helps a lot. And somebody, please get Andy Reid a cheeseburger. I know he ate a pizza celebrating the game. I really don't believe that either Jalen Hurts and the Eagles, nor Mahomes and the Chiefs are done. Not at this point. I would say that, you know, uh, the Chiefs at this point, and I have to say this, have already adhered to it. Four-time Super Bowl champ and former Pittsburgh Steelers, God rest his soul, defensive lineman Dwight White once said, and I'm quoting, there are two categories of Super Bowl participants nobody remembers. One, the team that lost the game. And two, the team that only won one. So any way you slice it, you know, two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL right now, they played on Sunday. Mahomes already established uh, as the league's best. And Hurts, he's creeping on the come up. But let's, you know, it's just great to see that there were two African-American quarterbacks starting 
in a Super Bowl classic. Um, some things like this, you know, some things come before their time. And around here in Nashville, there was a place called Fountain Square. If any Nashvillians know anything about it, and all, with all the gentrification going on throughout the country, um, just talking about in the U.S., I'm not sure about overseas, but Fountain Square here in Nashville was kind of like really close to the hood. It was a nice um, mall shopping type area with a nice food court. You know, it was, it was a, a uh, kind of like a miniature mall type thing that had uh, a thing out back with water and paddle boats and all kinds of stuff and places that you could hang out and eat and, and, and party and all of that stuff and shop all at the same time. It was a, what uh, the record stores that was there and, and Foot Locker and all kinds of stuff like that. But it didn't last very long. Right next door, the movie theater lasted, and now that's knocked down in this dust. Um, if they do it now, then it would thrive. Um, but just like Fountain Square, there were some African Americans that just came through the league basically when it just wasn't popular just yet. They weren't accepted yet. We all saw Doug Williams at the beginning of the Super Bowl. You know, Sunday he was flanked on on one side by uh, two Hall of Famers. One side was Will Shields and the other side was Harold Carmichael. They played for the Chiefs and the Eagles, respectively. Uh, Williams, of course, he was Super Bowl 22 MVP. Was the first black quarterback to ever start a Super Bowl. First black quarterback to ever win a Super Bowl. Yet, not the first minority. Joe Cap, he actually started Super Bowl four. Um, way back in 1969, well, the year was January in 1970 when he when they lost to the Chiefs. They were the NFL's best, uh, and uh, he was a Mexican American, as uh, as was uh, as is the, he's still alive. As is Jim Plunkett, who was the first minority to start in well to win a Super Bowl, not just start but win. He's got two rings with the Raiders, and he was he's a mix of Hispanic and Native American. Um. Down 10 to nothing. And after he suffered a hyper-extended knee, Doug Williams led Washington to a Super Bowl record 35-point second quarter, and he threw for a record tying four touchdowns, and he finished the game passing for a then-record 340 yards. How did Doug Williams get there? And how was how was things um how was things before he got there? How how before, during, and after? How how did how did things change for black quarterbacks? How do you get Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, Deshaun Watson, Michael Vick, Warren Moon, the first and only black quarterback to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Donovan McNabb, Randall Cunningham, Jeff Blake, Rodney Pete, David Garrard, Jeff Blake, Tony Branks, Troy Smith, Seneca Wallace. Josh Freeman, Jacoby Brissett, Geno Smith, Steve McNair, Cam Newton, Jameis Winston, RG3, Colin Kaepernick, Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott, Teddy Bridgewater, Cordell Stewart, Sean King, Dante Culpepper. How about Aaron Brooks, Quincy Carter, Vince Evans, Jerry Colquitt, Charlie Batch, Akili Smith, Michael Bishop, Anthony Wright, T. Martin, Vince Young, Tyrod Taylor, E.J. Manuel, Justin Fields, Jordan Love, Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter, Trey Lance, P.J. Walker, and Dwayne Haskins. How do you get to all of these names? Whether they were good 
whether they were great, whether they weren't that great, they got an opportunity. And there was a time when they did not get that kind of opportunity. How did we get here? Well, before that 1987 season, you got to go all the way back to the 1900s, the early 1900s. You had the first professional football player, Charles Follis, who got his shot. We've talked about this on this show, about Fritz Pollard, who technically wasn't a quarterback, but was the first African-American to line up behind center. You have to remember that the game was played in the wing tee. It was always a shotgun. You know, it just wasn't exactly to pass. He was the first African-American head coach, even though he was a co-head coach. Of course, it wasn't until Art Shell in 1989 was named the first sole NFL head coach as a black man, and, you know, with the, uh, with the L.A. Raiders. But, you know, after Fritz Pollard and all of the guys that paved the way that started in professional football, you have to remember, again, pro football was not popular yet. It was not there yet. You had professional baseball. You had college football that was king. <laughs> Excuse me. You had all of these other sports that were popular. I mean, you can go back to the 1800s. I have some books where I've read about black jockeys, uh, rugby players, as well as football players, you know, that, that were some of the first, whether they were in college or in the professional ranks. And it took, hmm, let's just say it, there were organizations that were formed to say that you have to be a part of this organization to continue to compete and be a part of this. And that basically kept us out. That was able, to, they were able to give us the Heisman right in our forehead to say, as a black man, you cannot compete. As a black athlete, you cannot compete. So many times we forget about women. We're gonna get to that one, one show too, got to. But, especially when it comes to the NFL. But during the, the early NFL days, the AFPA, okay, before it was called the NFL, even too when it was renamed the NFL, there was a, a band that was pretty much put on black players. 17 played from, they were 17 professional football players that played before you know between 1920 and 1933 you have to go also back to 1904 that's when charles follows was playing between 34 and 45 there were zero i've been reading a book called the league um and in it it talks about how the first commissioner joe carr and other owners such as george hallis and art rooney senior owners at the time they and at least some denied literally blackballing African-Americans from playing pro football in the NFL. But it also makes a very valid point and asks a very valid question. A known racist, George Preston Marshall, he just entered the league in 1932. It was the Boston, this is called a football team for you know all due respect, before he moved them to Washington to the DC area. You know, a year later, after you know, a year later, there are no blacks allowed. So somebody put that idea in their heads. Somebody did, and I believe that it was him. So 1946, blacks are back. Why? A couple of black newspapers uh, made some noise, you know, about the Cleveland Rams when they moved to L.A. after their 1945 championship that they won after 
going you know almost basically sub 500 all the way up to that point the first year they're over 500 they win the championship in cleveland and dan reeves the owner decides well we're out of here because we're not getting the kind of support and i think it'd be better in la well the <laughs> they wanted to play in the coliseum which was a publicly funded venue and you cannot absolutely cannot play in a venue that's funded by both white and black minorities and not allow this is what the black newspapers will call it them out for you can't do this except money for us from us to fund this place and you're not allowing any minorities on your team specifically blacks so they had to go get kenny washington and then of course woody strode and then in the other league the exact same year the aafc the all-america football conference they had just begun and did the exact same thing meanwhile back in cleveland paul brown decides to sign two he was very instrumental in both signing marion motley and bill willis who latter you know willis coached him at ohio state and then motley he coached at the great lakes naval base relationships are important and he gave them the opportunity because he knew that he needed the best of the best of the best in order to compete and win. Of course, they won all four AAFC championships. And of course, Motley and Willis are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. From there, the numbers of African-Americans only grew and did better. You know, even Marshall <laughs> had to have his arm put behind his back, much like Reeves, by the Kennedy administration. And finally had to integrate to watch the football team, who was the last teams do so do so in 1961 same thing the kennedy administration say you can't play in this new stadium and this i guess it was like a 30-year lease you can't play here if you don't integrate period and he did it reluctantly but there was still a couple more of issues just to put it mildly um there were certain positions as african-americans we were just not allowed to play they didn't think we were smart enough didn't have the ability to play quarterback or middle linebacker. We talk about quarterback all the time, but middle linebacker was the supposed thinking man's position too. Because the middle linebacker is the one who calls the plays defensively, makes the adjustments, right? Mm. So you have, you know, put aside the skill positions. You know, we could play receiver, running back, and fullback, offensive line, except center, mm. defensive line, outside linebacker, defensive back. They didn't want us calling plays as, as African Americans. Of course, the first black man, again, you go back to Fritz Pollard back in 1920 with the Akron Pearls, and he continues, you know, through NFL history players such as George Talafaro, Willie Thrower, George Choo Choo Brackets, even, like I said, Joe Cap, uh, minorities at quarterback, but they were very, very short-lived. Not Cap, but, yeah, Willie Thrower, Choo Choo Brackens, Talafaro ended up switching positions, uh, you know, and then you had what, Henri Jackson, J.J. Jones, uh, Dave Mays, John Walton, Pernell Dickinson, and even Vince Evans. Some of these guys even had to convert to other positions. And of course, you go with Marlon Briscoe and back in 1968, the year they killed King. So you know there's a lot of racial things that are still going on. The movement is still going on right now. It's hot, right? Of course, he was with the Denver Broncos. They concerned can, they converted him 5'9". And I've said this before. The first time I've seen or even heard Marlon Briscoe's name was when he was playing with the Miami Dolphins. I had yet to know about him playing with the Bills. I had yet to know about him playing with the Denver Broncos in the old AFL. He was the first black quarterback to start. Because in their first game, you know, he was down to 
No options at quarterback. Lou Saban, the head coach. And he put in Marlon Briscoe, and they let the magic man do his thing. But eventually, you know, he was had to play receiver. They switched him up as well. But you fast forward to the time when he was with the Bills. I mean, the next year, 1969, James Shaq Harris was drafted by the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and he was the first African-American opening day starter in NFL history, but they only lasted one game. He would start two more games with Buffalo, playing here and there, and he was out of football by 1972. He returned in 1973 with the LA Rams, and he became the first African-American quarterback to start a playoff game, as well as win one, and they defeated the Washington football team 19 to 10. And he was the first African-American to make the Pro Bowl, and he was the first to be named MVP of the Pro Bowl. And that's back when it mattered. I've said that before. And with all that being said, it was about what Harris had to go through. We had to endure. I've been reading another book, very good book by Jason Reed. Used to be called The Undefeated. Now it's called Anscape. Senior NFL writer, Jason Reed. It's called The Rise, excuse me, Rise, not The Rise, Rise of the Black Quarterback. What it means for America. Coming out of Grambling, you got a 6'4", 210-pound quarterback, absolutely a big arm, cannon for an arm. And at some point, and I can't remember if it was Doug Williams or Shaq Harris or who it was that said this, but they said, and I quote, basically, being a trailblazer sucks. Being the first to basically have to go through, you know, the crap that they had to endure in those days. I mean, even be just, not just a quarterback, just being a black man, a black person, or a black, we're talking about football, black football player. Just going through all of that stuff and the stuff that I've read is just, it's just been ridiculous. Go back to my shows that I've done on African-Americans in the NFL and you'll see what I'm talking about. There's more to come, I'm not done. But being a trailblazer sucks. You have to be the first one to have to deal with some stuff and not saying that it's, you know, it's not, it's gotten a lot better now. Still some, some things that's being done openly, all right? But Harris wasn't exactly the first one. He was actually the first one that was seriously considered at the quarterback position because he wasn't changing positions for anybody. Teams wanted him to switch. And they said, if you switch, if you play receiver or something, because the guy was fast. I didn't know that Shaq Harris was fast. He was fast coming out of Grambling. But he was a pocket-passing quarterback. He was a quarterback that was, he was mobile, but he could be a pocket-passing quarterback. And they said, if you switch, you'll be drafted in the first round, like everybody else. <laughs> he was not switching. He ended up being drafted by the Bills in the eighth round, 192 overall. And he stuck it out in Buffalo as long as they had him. And he won the starting job. He had, the, uh, he had Pete Rozelle, commissioner, behind him. He's like, hey, look, I'm proud and I'm seeing what you're doing and we're watching from New York. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take that as being that Rozelle wanted to see that kind of thing succeed. Even though the mindset for most, not just their fans, coaching staffs, they just did not want to do this. And they were slow to switch over to this. To make, that, to allow, our, <clears throat> I'll say this. So, it was a militaristic mindset because the quarterback, you know, when NFL really got popular, remember the ban happened because the NFL got popular. It wasn't popular like college football and and like the the um, 
like Major League Baseball or any other sport, and even the NBA, you know, when it first came to ABA, NBA, all, you know, it, it wasn't popular yet. But then when it got popular, then it's like, all right, especially during the war, it's like, okay, well, now that it's popular, yeah, we need these guys out of here because we should have first dibs on any and everything. And I've said this before, my God, a black guy is taking a white man's job. So, you know, that's part of, I think, the mindset that some of them already may have had, owners as well as players. But then at the same time, you know, you had George Preston Marshall, the racist, that said, yeah, I'm sure he brought that mindset and put it over the top. Because I think there were like two guys left that were still in the league and they played for the Chicago Cardinals and it, Joe uh, Joe Lillard, and I forget what the other player was, he actually played for Pittsburgh, and he was the last one. He played offensive line. And after that last player that Art Rooney had, and I think he could have stepped in and said something, but they, you know, they let him go, and then they weren't invited back. Very interesting. Very interesting. But, you know, he he uh, Shaq Harris, he stuck it out as long as he could. But the thing is, you know, <laughs> he had to go through a lot of hay bail as well as death threats. Harris said from himself, I mean, he's, from where he's from and where he played down there, and remember, Groundland is in Louisiana. <laughs> One of the worst places you could probably be. You, know, you think about Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, and and, and uh, uh, Alabama. You don't want to be around Texas. You don't want to be down low, below the Mason-Dixon line in the 1960s. But, you know, they stuck to themselves. You know, they were mostly around other blacks. They played at a black school. But then when he goes up north and he's having to play with all these white guys, the offensive line is white. The head coaches, the, the head coaches, the, the coaching staff, for the most part, they're all white. And so you're having to do something that you've never done before. And again, you know, the once the game had become uh, popular, it's like, well, we don't think that you can do this job at the same clip as a white man could do. And that's that was the mentality. Well, you know, there were fans that didn't like it and they sent death threats and hate mail. And there's some stuff that he just he said he did not experience before, had, you know, coming from down. He experienced experienced racism, but then he got a different side of it when he left, you know, from being in the black community. You know what I mean? And so that opening day start that he had against Joe Namath and the defending champion, champion New York Jets, Harris got hurt in the first half, and he got the quick hook too. Never started again the rest of that season. And even though he played in four games, ultimately the Bills ended up cutting Harris in 1971. He started three of 18 games that he, you know, that he played in. He was out of football in 72. He got picked up by the Rams in 73. And that's when he made history happen. And he was the pro bowler and he was taking them to the playoffs. They were 11 and two at one point under Shaq Harris. The guy could do the job. It's just that simple. When, even when they let him go, it was they was putting the blame on him because I've, I've done a show on the Rams before and they, they just, they were so close. As a matter of fact, I think that was the name of the show because the Rams, they were just always in the NFC Championship game. They would always win the first round and lose the second round. They, they would they would get to the cusp of the Super Bowl and they never could get over the top. And they put a lot of that on James Shaq Harris. Like, okay, yeah, they putting it on him. Wow. But his record as a starter by the end of his time in LA was 21 to 6 in the regular season. 
One and two in the playoffs. I understand that. But you got it. He got the quick hook again. He did. He finished his career with the Chargers, but he never got the same opportunity that he had with the Rams. I think he retired after the 1981 season. Then there's the story of Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam. Reading about Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam, um, this guy was at, at you know at, at uh, TSU, Tennessee State University, right down the street. I could probably look out my window and see the campus from here. Um, the dude was uh, a prodigy as a passing quarterback. He was just a small guy. He only weighed 187 pounds. Yeah, he was a skinny guy that, but he could throw the football. The guy could throw the football. I never seen anybody pregame. I read about how he was throwing balls behind his back, either hand. I mean, he was a showman as well, but he got it done. He played for Big John Merritt. TSU won seven national black national titles. Uh, his father was even on the coaching staff, and he wasn't on the team just because of his father. The dude could play. He could play. And when the Steelers ended up drafting him in 1972, while Shaq Harris is out of football, you know, they brought him to a team that had their first pick in the draft, Terry Bradshaw, and then they drafted another quarterback by the name of Terry Hanratty. You know what the numbers were on the quarterbacks when Gilliam came to Pittsburgh? 19 touchdowns and 46 interceptions. Mm. Bill Nunn. Bill Nunn, one of the most instrumental black scouts ever, okay? Was really the first... Uh, he wasn't the first black scout, but he was uh, he was the guy that was like the most. He, I think he was the second, really. And actually, if I read carefully, he may have been third. I don't want to get into the numbers, um, but he was instrumental in bringing in HBCU talent to Pittsburgh. And he was one of them. And they wanted to draft him as a quarterback. And he slipped and they could see that he was slipping in the draft because he was black. And part of even the Steelers and even Nunn's um, uh, assessment of Gilliam was that he was just so light. You didn't have quarterbacks that was that light. Remember, you had 210 pounds, you know, quarterbacks like Shaq Harris. But he slipped in the draft all the way down. And I think he was drafted in the 11th round in 1972. So, but you fast forward to the 1974 season. And Gilliam won the job over both Hanratty as well as Bradshaw. They were not ready at quarterback yet. Uh, Bradshaw was. We know he's a Hall of Famer, won four Super Bowls, two Super Bowl MVPs, you know. But he hadn't he hadn't gotten there yet. His first really good season wasn't until, what, 1976, 77, maybe even 78, when he actually was putting together some passing, uh, you know, actually getting it done throwing the football on a regular basis maybe 75 but uh, he wasn't there yet um but there was an extra unfair pressure that was on Gilliam not only is a black quarterback starting in the NFL but you know he had to be he had to be near perfect that's what quarterbacks back then had to be it was the pressure of fans and even the the the, the, the coaching staff and the ownership and then you had like I said death threats I read in one portion of Jason Reed's book how Joe Gilliam Sr., you know, the defensive coordinator for TSU, and his wife, Ruth, they went to go visit Joe Jr. at his apartment in Pittsburgh. Jr. opens up a closet door with three boxes in it. All death threats. All hate mail. And he hadn't experienced stuff like that before. I even read in another portion of the book where teammates wouldn't even stand next to him on the sideline because of those threats. They didn't want to get shot or killed or whatever. And that's because he was a black 
quarterback. I shouldn't even be saying black quarterback, but I mean that's what they 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 pinpointed them as black quarterbacks, not a quarterback, but a black quarterback. Even when Gilliam won the starting job, my father actually has that um, that Sports Illustrated 1974 uh, issue, Pittsburgh's black quarterback, and it was. You know, after the first game that they played and Gilliam torched the Baltimore Colts, by the way. He's got that framed in his upstairs. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, it was great that he won that job. and But he had to be almost perfect. All the quarterbacks didn't have that pressure. At least most of them. You know, there are some fans out there. They're crazy and they're just as stupid. And I'm sure and it still happens today. Um, there's idiots in all sports. Okay, They get and give letters and and players get death threats and things like that of course it's taken a lot more seriously and they're gonna trace it back to your crazy stupid idiot behind and they're gonna get you but when you're a black and a quarterback during this era 60s to 70s you know or even close to this time you got death threats eventually he lost the job even though his opening record was four one and one he did have he did make some mistakes no one wanted to run the football. It wasn't any different than any other coach in the league at the time. And the league at the time was more of a running league. You know, AFL was passing, right? But the, it was a running league. You did have quarterbacks that could call their own plays. And I know that's what Terry Bradshaw did. And the Pittsburgh quarterbacks did that. But Mo was like, run the football. I want to run the football. He was another one of those coaches. Only three, the, two of the three things in throwing the football are bad. I want you to run the football. And apparently, and this is via teammates, Gilliam called his number too many times. He threw, he turned the ball over a little bit too much. Probably should have been smarter, you know, you know, even things out, but he still should have maintained that job. You know, there's no good excuse or reasoning, you know, to a degree. I understand though that the call was made and you know, some of the players disagreed and there were players who did agree, black or white, didn't matter. Um, but they, they made the call to switch it back to Bradshaw and of course the rest is history. But there was a problem off the field and I think he was trying to cope with, you know, this is before he lost the job, but he was trying to cope with this stuff that he was having to deal with and he fell into some heavy drug use, weed, and it went to cocaine, speed, and heroin. You know, 75, you know, he was still on the team, but after 75 and they won that Super Bowl, he was he was done. You know, he was one of the backup quarterbacks, but he was done with the Steelers. 76, he tried, you know, with the uh, New Orleans Saints. They cut him, and, uh, you know, he went into a real deep depression. He had some issues. He came out of those issues, even though he died back in 2000 at the age of 49 years old. The guy made a comeback life-wise, and they come off of that stuff. Um, but it was a long, hard road for Joe Gilliam. Very long, hard road. And again, um, you know, the fact that he came in, um, you know, out of an HBCU, very low round draft pick, Tony Dungy said, Tony Dungy, Tony Dungy said something really profound. He beat out a Hall of Fame quarterback. And, and I would say he also beat out a quarterback that played at Notre Dame, Terry Hanratty. Hanratty was not great. Um, but he, he beat out a Hall of Fame quarterback. And people say even to this day that he was still, it, Bradshaw had a powerful arm, but Gilliam was better. He was he was much better. Then you go back to Doug Williams and that magical 87 season in Super Bowl 22 MVP. 
Washington head coach Joe Gibbs, he had been, you know, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1978 as the offensive coordinator. And as it came from Gibbs' own lips, um, he was the only one that actually came to see Doug Williams pre-draft. And that was because, again, from his own lips, Gibbs said that head coach John McKay, the, the expansion Buccaneers coach at that time, he had told him he wanted Gibbs to go down there and go down to Grambling, go down there, go down to Grambling State University and check out Doug Williams. He went there for two days, hung out with Doug Williams. All right, at the time, Doug Williams was a, a student teacher at Carroll High School in Monroe, Louisiana. He had already graduated from Grambling with his bachelor's degree in education. And according to Reed, he was working on his master's degree. He wanted to be a coach in high school. Think like his brother. Um, if he hadn't been drafted before the third round, if he was going to play NFL football, but Eddie Robinson, legendary coach from Grambling, uh, of Grambling at the time, uh, he wanted guys like, he wanted him to follow this in the steps of Shaq Harris. And, you know, Harris, he lasted uh, some years in the league. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, you know, with, with Williams, he was like, I, if, if I don't get drafted this high, then I don't want to go. But, Robinson said, you need to go. We need you to do that. Because what's that going to do for the people that come after you? What's going to happen to those who come after you are gone? You got to try this. You got to get, you know, you want to take this opportunity. It's basically what he was saying. Again, he had already graduated. But Gibbs, he was the first year offensive coordinator in Tampa. He took Williams and his future wife, Janet, to McDonald's. And they had a meeting, and that, I mean, that was the Tampa Bay budget, I guess, at the time. Um, and you know, they went to McDonald's. They did some board work, you know, and uh, they, they talked football, much like what you see today. Of course, the draft wasn't on TV and all that stuff, but you would think, though, that the quarterback who had finished fourth in the nation in the 1978 Heisman voting behind Jim McAfee, Terry Miller, and of course, the Heisman Trophy winner, Earl Campbell would actually draw some attention from NFL scouts. He didn't. Potentially the best quarterback in the country. If you finish that high in, in the Heisman as a quarterback, you're the best quarterback in the country. There, I said it. He was the best quarterback in the country. Period. But nobody was looking at him. The Buccaneers made Williams the first African-American quarterback in NFL history. Hear what I'm saying? In NFL history to be drafted on the in the first round on May 2nd, 1978. He was 17th overall. You have to understand what was understood by Doug Williams. There had been another first-round quarterback before him that was drafted back in 1968. This occurred in the AFL, when both the AFL and the NFL were using a combined common draft, but this was in the AFL. They had yet to merge. They didn't merge until 1970. Eldridge Dickey, a three-time HBCU All-American from TSU, Tennessee State University. The Raiders drafted him 25th overall. The Raiders were in the AFL, right? They ultimately, they converted him to a wide receiver. And there was somewhat a reason for that, yet not. And we'll get to that in another show. That there, He's got a story. The crazy part is that Doug Williams was actually traded during that 87 season to the Raiders, if you know that story. But Gills went with his gut and kept Williams in Washington, which Doug did not like at all because he wanted a chance to start. He was the backup. He was brought in to be the backup at the time. And he told Doug Williams in Washington, he said, look, I got a feeling that you're going to do something and help us to win this thing. 
Wow, what a profit. So, with that being said, Doug Williams actually had a lot more support in his favor uh, that really mattered outside of Joe Gibbs in Tampa. It was Gibbs that had let head coach John McKay, you know, him and McKay was the one that wanted Gibbs to go and scout Doug Williams. Remember, Tampa Bay was an expansion team. They were trash. They lost their first 26 games. They were terrible at the quarterback position. Five QBs in two years. McKay was a supporter of Doug Williams and had been a legendary coach at the college level with US, with USC, right? Southern Cal. You don't already know McKay had a black starting quarterback. He had actually a couple of starting black quarterbacks at Southern Cal. Three-year star Jimmy Jones and also Vince Evans, both of whom won Rose Bowls for McKay. Because he had a rough rookie year. By the second year, in 79, not only did the Bucks win the division, but they were in the NFC Championship. They lost nine to nothing to the Rams, who went to the Super Bowl finally. It very ironic. It was the Rams. Um, but uh, you know, he he had done something with an expansion team. You have to remember. And he did get hate mail and he got death threats as well. He even got the watermelon. He talked about the watermelon, a rotten watermelon in a box. They said, uh, throw this uh to them in words. Throw this in word to them to them in words. They'll catch that. A watermelon. You know, just slow down dirty, you know. Mm, I can't say. But I mean, that kind of pressure to be pretty much be perfect. You're not sending a watermelon to, you know, some of these white quarterbacks that stink, are you? You're not sending death threats to them. Not like that. Not to that level. Not to that degree. But with all of that stuff that he went through and 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 the and the the, the great play that he displayed as an African-American quarterback. He ended up being released by Tampa Bay after the uh, after the 1983 season, I believe it was. Or, yeah, I think it was the 83 season. And this was after he lost his wife, Janice, three months after they had their daughter, after their daughter was born. Um, it was a contract dispute. Hugh Culverhouse didn't want to pay Doug Williams. It was, he was the owner. Didn't want to pay Doug Williams. Now answer me this. You got one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Turns your team around by his second year. There are 28 teams in the league at the time. And he was 54th on the list of quarterbacks as far as pay in the entire league. You had 54. He's number 50. He's number 54 out of 20 out of 28 starters. So you're telling me there's backups out there getting paid more than Doug Williams? <laughs> I mean, it's just blatant. That was blatant. It was blatant. Uh, and this is an excerpt from another show, some notes from another show. He asked, Williams asked Culverhouse for a $600,000 contract. And that tight wide only offered him $400,000. Head coach John McKay, he tried convincing Culverhouse to pay the man. He wouldn't do it. So he sat out the 83 season and he ended up playing for the USFL uh, was it the Oklahoma Outlaws in 1984? Of course, the league folded up in 86, and he was out of a job. Of course, you fast forward to Monday Night Football, Washington playing against the New York Giants. LT, Lawrence Taylor, he inadvertently ended Joe Theismann's career with that broken leg. Ooh, makes me cringe every time I think about it. And Joe Gibbs calls on who else? 
Doug Williams. He's the head coach in Washington at the time, right? Jay Schrader, he finally lost his job to Williams because he was the starter. He was the established starter after um, Theismann went down. And Schrader actually played well uh, to finish out that 86 season. He got the brakes beat off of him in the uh, title game. In 87, he was kind of up and down, kind of up and down. Uh, but he got that job, Williams did, from Jay Schrader. And uh, pretty much it happened that in the last game of the regular season against Minnesota. He was the starter of the red, named the starter for the rest of the postseason. Gibbs had a feeling, right? They beat Chicago at Soldier Field. Turned out to be Walter Payton's last game at Soldier Field. Beat Minnesota at home. Great game there. And then they were out Denver 42-10 in Super Bowl 22. And it was ironic that the team that was last to integrate, who had a racist owner, Ended up, at the time that is, ended up winning their second Super Bowl championship in three, well, four tries actually, making history uh, not only the first black quarterback to start a Super Bowl, but also to win it. You can't make this stuff up. And it's guys like Doug Williams, Shaq Harris, Marlon Briscoe, Fritz Pollard, Joe Gillian. These guys made a way for the Patrick Mahomes and for the Jalen Hurts to get where they are today. It's only got to get better, and it has to continue to get better. like to see that happen in coaching. We need to see that happen, and I'm talking about head coaching, not defensive coordinator. You know, I need offensive, black offensive coordinators. I need head coaches, and I definitely need ownership because it starts there with the ownership as well as GMs. Getting better, but it could get so much better. References, that's it. I know it's a long show, but uh, we're not doing the show next week. We're taking a break. It may be a two-week break, but I'll let you guys know. But we, we, we're we taking a break. References, thanks to ESPN.com, ProFootballReference.com. Also, four books. The first, The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire. This one written by John Eisenberg. Also, the Sporting News Complete Super Bowl Book, 1993 edition. I go to this a lot. Editors, Tom Dinert, Joe Hopple, and Dave Sloan. Also, very good book, Guts and Genius. The story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 1980s. Written by Bob Glauber. And also, please get this book, Rise of the Black Quarterback. What it means for America. Written by Jason Reed. And also, a beautiful, beautiful film I watched on Doug Williams. Skin Deep, the Doug Williams story. This one by NFL Network. NFL Network. Boy, I keep Got to slow down. Got to slow down, NFL Network. This has been the Behind the Mic podcast presented by Belly Up Sports. Again, I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. Belly Up Sports Media. Belly Up Media. Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Again, go to bellyupsports.com. You can catch us all, all of our shows on the new platform of Megaphone. Also, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show or I will find your house. I'm out. See you in two weeks.